welcome to this edition of the Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Fanula Halligan, Screen's Reviews Editor and Chief Film Critic, and I'll be your host for today's episode as our fearless leader, Matt Mueller, has a well-deserved week off. I'm joined today by two of my illustrious Screen colleagues, Deputy Editor Louise Tutt and America's Editor Jeremy Kay, who is dusting off his black tie as we speak in preparation for attending the 94th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony, which takes place this Sunday night, March the 27th. We'll be discussing our thoughts on the Oscar ceremony and Oscar nominations. And after that, Jeremy recently sat down with Denis Villeneuve, whose sci-fi epic Dune is up for 10 awards this weekend, including Best Film. But first, we're going to cast our eyes briefly back at the BAFTAs, which took place on March 13, and saw Netflix's Power of the Dog take Best Film and Best Director Prize for Jane Campion. So, Jeremy, can I start with you and ask what difference you think the results of the BAFTAs made as we run into the Oscars, do you think they were influential? Yeah, I do. I think um, it all helps. And it was, you know, that win for The Power of the Dog is something that will not have gone unnoticed by the voters here and the campaigners. And a best film win is, is I think, is very significant. And I believe Will Smith won the best actor, right? So that's also something that adds weight to his campaign. Um, yeah, I, I think it shouldn't be discounted. It's definitely meaningful. Louise, you've been covering the BAFTAs all year. What did you think of of the night's proceedings? I thought they were interesting because they really did spread the love. The power of the dog didn't win anything until the last moment, and then it got the two big ones with Coda picking up adapted screenplay, Belfast picking up Best British. I think, if anything, Belfast could probably come away feeling a little bit disappointed that it only got Best British. When I say only, I mean, of course, BAFTA is trying to place more emphasis on the British categories, but I'm not sure it quite felt like that on the night. Um, And June took all the big tech ones, and there was a moment when it felt like the momentum was building for June. Um, But as is the way with these things, I mean, it's interesting, Jeremy, you say that it feels like it does count towards the Oscars because it felt to me like it sort of kept it as wide open as ever. Well, I mean, I just think it's something that helps. It just helps the campaign. And it's just something that Oscar voters who are voting now on their final, as we're recording this, on their final ballots through Tuesday, that might be something that um, just influences them a little bit too. I mean, there's many factors, but I don't think it should be discounted. So every little helps, in other words. Yeah. Louise, obviously we've been talking a lot about award ceremonies. They've been hemorrhaging viewers. They're struggling to find their place in the, you know, the age of... TikTok and shorter attention spans, although they're very, very long, so you don't need a short attention span to get a bit fatigued by them. What did you think of the ceremony itself? Just to recap, Rebel Wilson came in as host. There was quite a few no-shows from the major stars because there was a massive clash in ceremonies going on. What was your opinion? It was an interesting ceremony. I like Rebel Wilson very much. I think she was a good choice as host. I think the problem was, and as something we noted in screen, it didn't really feel much like the BAFTAs were at their own ceremony. You had a lot of um, scripted funny moments from Rebel that I'm not sure landed very well. She was much, much funnier when she was ad-libbing and off script. And there were bits with her bra and a cake of Benedict Cumberbatch that, I mean, they would have left that BBC One audience in the UK at seven o'clock on a Sunday night, completely bewildered. So I think tonally it was a little bit all over the place. Um, Like I mentioned, I think it was a bit disappointing. The best British category was, it was sort of rushed through, I think. I mean, I personally actually haven't seen the TV broadcast. I was in the ceremony, but you didn't get a sense of 
the films very much. There weren't sort of long, glorious clips of all the films. There were sort of short and sharp snippets. And I felt, especially with something like the British category, which did have some smaller independent films like Ali and Ava and After Love, that they could have really benefited from that TV audience, you know, that real kind of window to these independent films that viewers watching at seven o'clock on a Sunday just wouldn't have heard of. And then, you know, but I think that it was an interesting show. Like I say, it completely spread the love. You know, you had, you know, Will Smith winning for King Richard, Joanna Scanlon, Troy Kotzer, and it was incredible. And it was, you could feel that, like Jeremy says, in terms of everything helping with the Oscars, I think, you know, Sean Hedder's win for adapted screenplay. I mean, she gave a fantastic speech, you know, and I think that that all will go towards perhaps momentum building for CODA at the Oscars. It was unusual, the ceremony, wasn't it, in terms of, you know, say a couple of years ago or a decade ago or so, you would have um, expected the songs, performances. Sometimes they, they struggle to stage those, but the BAFTAs, they were starting off with Shirley Bassey singing Diamonds Are Forever. The two musical numbers they had were, were exceptionally moving and strong. Jeremy, how do you think, do you think that this is going to play out in the Oscars? Do you think the sort of, the Oscars producers would have been looking at the BAFTAs for what worked and what didn't? Yeah, I think, I think the Oscar producers are looking anywhere for anything that works and provides entertainment. I mean, this really is such an important show for them, isn't it? Last year's were, Oscars were produced the lowest audience in history and um, they've got to try and jazz it up a little bit and make it more fun and they're trying a few things we don't know what there's going to be a press conference later this week so we'll get to hear a bit more about it I've got a feeling with Will Packer who's produced Girls Trip and seems to have his you know finger on the pulse and he's kind of cool cultural figure I've got a feeling he's going to produce something that could be really fun to watch we'll see we'll see on Sunday what do you think of the host, Jeremy? What do you think tonally that means for, for the, the ceremony? We're going to Amy Schumer, Regina Hall and Wanda Sykes. Has there been much coverage of what you know, people might expect from them? Yeah, there's been a little bit. I mean, and they've said that there's, you know, nothing's going to be off the table. So it's going to be like a fun, no holds barred sort of presentation. I think it's, it's quite inspired, actually, having those three ladies and we'll see how they combine together. I think they're really funny. I'm looking forward to seeing Amy Schumer. And I think Wanda Sykes is hilarious. And I'm really curious to see Regina Hall. She's, you know, a really appealing personality on screen. So it, it could be fun. It could be, I hope it's irreverent. I hope it's fun. And um, I know the producers will be hoping so as well. What about Jeremy? Where are we with the fan favourite award? The Twitter Yes. Initiative. Yes. Well, well, this was something that the Academy introduced a few weeks ago, and um, anybody can vote via Twitter on their favourite movie, even if it's not nominated by the Academy. And the idea is that that fan favourite film will be recognised during the show. It'll get a shout-out. And there's a few other little tidbits and sort of fun prizes for select Twitter voters. They get to go to the show uh, next year, I think. So that's, a, you know, another attempt to popularise it and make this thing connect with audiences back at home who, who may not be that interested in some of the films that are nominated, certainly some of the more art house films. I think it's a good idea. 
I read, and I don't know if this is true or not, because we just love things that we read randomly, that um, the Johnny Depp film, Minimata, was in with the running because he has such a fervent, like completely fervent Twitter fan base. And uh, Cinderella was in with a chance as well. Is that just, you know, gossip, Jeremy? I don't know, Finn. I mean, it's, yeah. it's I, I've heard it and it's reasonable. And it'll just be so interesting to see if these films do win, or one of them wins, it gets a shout out, when... There are very different types of films. The commercial films are also more artistic, auteur-driven films being lauded by the um, by the Academy. I think it's a great idea. Let's let's see how it goes down. Well, what what are your plans, Jeremy, for Oscar night? I'm going. Yay! I'm going. I think I've been you know reporting on it mostly for the last 16, 17 years. So uh, I'm going to be going. I'm going to be sitting in the um, in the Dolby Theatre, get my two PCR tests, and sit there in the nosebleed seats and watch the show and. It'll be really fun. I haven't done it for a long, long time since I took my mum. And um, it's going to be great just to be there, just to feel, see, see what the buzz is like, see what the atmosphere is like. How long does it last, Jeremy? Are you packing, it, you know, sandwiches and a hip flask? Yeah, I'm going to drip feed myself. I've got, um, it's three <laughs> hours televised and it's actually four hours, isn't it? Because there's that one hour before the televised broadcast on ABC when they will be giving out the awards to those eight films that are not going to be handed out live on air. And those acceptance speeches, I think, will be sort of edited into the three-hour broadcast. So really, it's four hours in total. And that doesn't include the red carpet. What are you wearing, Jeremy? Who are you wearing? I don't know who I'm wearing. It might be Marks and Spencers, I imagine, or some other sensible brand for somebody who has no fashion sense. Style by Marks and Spencer. Well, you know, obviously, we, we write about the awards for half the year on Screen International, whether we want to or not. And, and in fact, sometimes it feels like we write about them the whole year round. And we're as excited as, as anyone else, and probably even more excited, to figure out who's going to win the kind of granddaddy of them all, which is the Academy Awards. So I think we should maybe talk about the sort of you know top four or five categories and um, see amongst ourselves who we want to win and who we think we should win. So can I start you off, Jeremy, with um, actor in a leading role? We have Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom, Will Smith, King Richard, Denzel Washington, The Tragedy of Macbeth. I would like, as you can see from my pause, I don't have strong views on who I'd want to win. I think they're all good. I would like Will Smith to win. I liked King Richard. I think it's a really incredible story. And I think he will win. I think actually it's, for me, it's along with one other category we'll mention later, the, the most kind of obvious shoe-in of all the categories. So I'm going for Will Smith. Okay, Louise. I'm going for Benedict Cumberbatch. I think that he actually, going back to the BAFTAs, he gave a very gracious speech. He was one of the high points of the BAFTAs, I thought. He's very funny and articulate and charismatic. Um, and of course, his performance was fantastic in the power of the dog so he's my favorite and I think he's probably second would you agree Jeremy is he Will's big competition yeah I would absolutely okay so it's down to Will Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch and to be honest with you I couldn't choose between both either and I feel a bit like Jeremy in that it's not a performance I feel sort of passionate about this year where other years I've really really wanted someone to win but um I could be very happy with both of them winning and with that we'll move on to Actress in a leading role. We have Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Colman, The Lost Daughter, 
Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Now, this is a category where the BAFTAs wouldn't have any influence at all because Joanna Scanlon uh, won that for After Love, which isn't nominated here. So we'll start with you, Louise. What's your favourite and who do you think will win? My favourite is definitely Penelope. Penelope Cruz in Parallel Mothers. I love that film. I think she's fantastic in it. And considering how many times she's worked with Pedro Almodovar, she, you, you forget she's Penelope Cruz. And it's incredible that she does that. And I, I did just love that film. Partly love, I don't, I don't feel strongly about any of the others. Although, again, I have sort of a sneaking, I would be really happy if Christine Stewart won. I sort of would love her to win. I like that film. I know I've spoken to the producer about the struggle they had to make it. They made it in such incredibly COVID tight conditions in the middle of a massive spike in Germany in the winter of 2021, I think it was. I've forgotten where we are now. Maybe 20, no, winter of 2020. So I, I would like Penelope or Kristen. I've got no idea who's going to win that. It's that, that's, pretty wide open isn't it what what do you think Jeremy I, I would love Kristen Stewart to win it I mean I think all five nominees are, are fantastic it's a really strong category and I would love her to win it but I think it's going to go to Jessica Chastain and she's another actress who I just think is brilliant and long overdue I don't think she's won a lead actress Oscar before I think she's long overdue and just fantastic in this film which has really crept up and sort of gained momentum in the last few weeks or months I agree with you, Jeremy. Jessica Chastain is, is is really, really good in the eyes of Tammy Faye. And then I saw her sort of shortly after that um, in Scenes from a Marriage, which she's just terrific. I mean, she's absolutely terrific in it. So I don't, you know, you wonder whether voters would, would bear both of them in mind when they when they come to voting. I mean, two very simultaneous projects, one for TV, obviously, and, and, and one for film. But I'm with you, Louise, with Penelope Cruz, who I just adored in Parallel Mothers. I mean, she was just amazing. So, and and this is just probably the toughest category really, because they, they really are all very strong. So good luck to them all. And we'll move on to directing. We have Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Rizuki Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza, Jane Campion, The Power of the Dog, Steven Spielberg, West Side Story. And I'll start this one off by saying I actually really would love Steven Spielberg to win for West Side Story because I thought it was so well directed, uh, which sounds like something that you would always say about a Spielberg film. But my, this was really beautifully put together. But I don't think that he will win because it just doesn't seem to have that momentum. And I think that possibly Jane Campion will win for Power of the Dog. Jeremy, what do you think? I think of those directors, the one who I would like to win would be Kenneth Branagh. I mean, I, I thought Belfast was really such a sweet film, but I think Jane Campion will win. I think for me, this is the clearest category. She's won the DGA. She's won a lot of awards. She won the BAFTA award, I think, didn't she? Critics' Choice, Critics' Groups. I think it's going to be Jane Campion. Do you think, Jeremy, that there was a little bit of chatter here about the potential banana skin that was her comment about the Williams sisters has that has, would that have any impact do you think on Jane's momentum you know I think every award season there's always the banana skin there's always the villain and I don't think she's been cast as that but there's always some you know people like to stir up some sort of uh controversy I don't think so I mean she misspoke I think she was you know mortified when she realized what she said and um no I don't think so I think it's Jane Campion all the way 
What's your hopes and fears and dreams, Louise? Well, no, that's good to hear, actually, because I really, really hope that Jane Campion wins it. I think that it's an incredibly directed film. I think it's a real, of course it is, it's the directing category at the Oscars, but I think it's really strong. I sort of would be happy if any of them won it. You get good odds on Paul Thomas Anderson at the moment, though. <laughs> well, now, finally, we will move on to the biggie. And this is one where CODA is nominated in the running. So that's going to put a spanner in the works because that's been getting some traction, hasn't it, Jeremy? Oh, it really has. I mean, this is the film that, I mean, and, and what a campaign, right? It launched in Sundance last year. Yes, 2021. Just won the, the Producers Guild of America Awards over the weekend, which is a big one, a really strong Oscar bellwether, a really strong indicator. And it's, it won the, the Writers Guild adapted screenplay yesterday, and it's won a bunch of others. So the, the force is with it. But I think it's neck and neck between that and Power of the Dog, with Belfast maybe just a little smidge behind. So what have I got to do? Say which I want to win and which I think well, will win. Well, let, um, let me read out the categories for you oh, in my yes, best podcast voice. Uh, we have Belfast, Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Jeremy, go. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to see West Side Story win, but I, gosh, I mean, this is the tightest one. This is such an epic contest. I think it's going to be Power of the Dog. And of course, if it's Power of the Dog or Coda, it'll be the first time a film backed by a streamer would have won the best picture. A lot at stake there. Yeah. Louise, what about you? It feels like all the momentum's moving with Coda, and I'd be really happy if Coda wins. It's got that Oscar feel-good best film written all over it. It's genuinely a sweet film that takes you somewhere new, tells a different kind of story, introduces you to a different kind of life. Um, not necessarily everyone, but open to the wide audience to that. And I think that it feels like it is moving that way. I don't have quite the love for West Side Story you both have, just because I think it's, I just think the power of a best picture win is such that it, it's sort of nice when it goes to a film that's slightly different to a newer director it opens the doors to financing to different kinds of films. And it just feels like West Side Story wouldn't do that in quite the same way. Whereas, you know, Power of the Dog or Coda would. But yeah, it's in, it's exciting because it's so open. And I think, you know, we've only got to think back to, what was it, 2016, 2017, where Moonlight just took it on the night, you know. And so it's it's exciting. I think there is genuine excitement ahead of it. That's a lot of good films, you know, as you, as you both say, that's a lot of really good films. And yeah, I'd like West Side Story to, yeah. to win. I mean, I just think it's fantastic. You know, it's, it's so well made. It's so beautifully put together and it's so skilled. You know, it's just so skilled, but it hasn't had that kind of momentum. You know, Spielberg, I, I guess, has felt to have had his place. But, but it is it, it can be very ironic, though, in terms of who's won an Oscar for Best Picture and which film they won it for and how they won it and when they won it. You know, these things are they don't always go the way they should. Should and you know the people win for the films that you don't think they will win for you know they get pipped at the post so and especially with all those brilliant films in the lineup I think it would be be hard to tell but I'd be delighted if it was Belfast, Coda, you know Drive My Car which is probably the one with the least chance, Power of the Dog, Licorice Pizza even you know it, it's a good race and oddly enough it feels to me like a, a pretty um, wide open race actually which always makes things really exciting because everyone's in with a chance are they? Yeah. 
I think that's it from us in, in the studio, as they say. And uh, thank you very much, Louise and Jeremy. And of course, good luck to everyone who's got anything at the Oscars, any, anything left to play for from all of us at screen. Speaking of which, we haven't talked about Dune at all, but that's because we have Jeremy's interview with Denis Villeneuve, the director of Dune, coming up. Stay tuned. Hi, so I'm joined today by Denis Villeneuve, the French-Canadian director of Dune, whose credits include Arrival, for which he earned an Academy Award directing nomination in 2017, Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, Incendie, and Prisoners, among others. Dune was one of the most acclaimed films of 2021. It's grossed just shy of $400 million at the global box office, which is no mean feat in a pandemic, and is among the front runners for awards. Denis, welcome to the pod. Thank you, thank you. So let me start by asking you this. You know, you've made a lot of dark, gritty, thrilling movies that are sort of very much rooted in contemporary life. And more recently, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and now Dune. And I noted in a recent interview with Screen, actually, you said of your career that you haven't so much turned towards sci-fi, but you've come back home to the job. <laughs> Can you, what did you mean by that? But the thing is that uh, when I was young, I was uh, introduced to science fiction at a very young age through graphic novels, European graphic novels, or magazines like Metal Hurlant, uh, Heavy Metal, I think, in the US edition. And uh, those graphic novelists uh, like Moebius, Bilal, Druyer, all, all those uh, artists were uh, creating worlds and that reopened my mind to the reality of science fiction, to the potential of science fiction, to the power of science fiction. And then I went into, into more into uh, novels. And that's where I discovered quite at, at a young age, the uh, books like Dune. So I, I, let's say that my appetite for storytelling was born with science fiction. And I, uh, through the years, of course, I, as I was growing up, uh, I got more interested into cinema and the power of cinema and, and to uh, the tool of cinema. But there was always that in the back of my mind that my first love was sci-fi. And, and uh, sorry, what, what I'm saying makes no sense. What I wanted to say by uh, cinema is also um, the, using cinema in the more uh, into contemporary uh, uh, world and uh, I started to do that at first because I think that it was important for me to be in control of the tools and to more specifically get closer to human behaviors and to uh, go deeper into uh, humans emotions and, and to understand humans interaction to drama but uh, I had always in the back of my mind the, the, the will to go back to science fiction. Yeah and then just tell me about the first time you read the book Dune by Frank Herbert. What did you feel? What did that mean to you? Uh, it was like, uh, you know, it's there's this strange things in that book where a boy will uh, go on a, another planet, meet a new culture, and uh, strangely feel home. And I had the same experience as I was reading the book. I mean, it's like it's a book that felt, of course, that was totally new, that was absolutely... Uh, mesmerizing. I was like uh, engulfed by uh, the writing, by the, what the, the description of Frank Herbert, everything. It's poetry, but it felt home. <laughs> I felt welcome in that universe. I felt that what it was talking about, the way it was Frank Herbert's preoccupations about the world, the way he was uh, uh, depicting the relationship of humans with the, their environment, the way he was following this boy that was able to consolidate his identity 
being in contact with another culture, that uh, exploration of the power of the human brain. It, there was something about all these elements that I was feeling, that the ideas that were so exciting to me that I, I felt uh, compelled to it. And I read all of Frank Herbert's book after that. And, and, uh, but that first book, that first stayed with me through the years. Yeah. And you were quite young when you read it, yes? You were a t young teenager? Yeah, I was like 13 years old. And it's like, it's a book that it's a, probably I was a target audience. I mean, like it's, it's a book that is designed, I think, to be read at a young age. It's like, a, there's a lot of things in the book that speak to younger people, but it's a book that can be revisited through the ages and you will always discover something new about, according to your own life experience. So just take us back a bit, Denny. Who, so at that age, when you were reading the book, who were you in your filmmaking? Were you that child who was always making films on Super 8? Were you in that early stage of filmmaking career yet? Not at all. I was like, I didn't have a camera. I was more into writing. I was in love with writing. At the time, uh, at that age, probably I was more dreaming. I was starting to discover what was the job of a director because I, I, I was starting to, to get interested by that. But I thought more that I, I, at the time I was more, there was something more about writing. And then I slowly did, did discover the power of cinema and the possibility of making a film was a big dream. But uh, I was like a very passive uh, <laughs> dreamer. I was like, I was writing screenplays. My best friend was doing storyboards. We were working together, uh, dreaming about making movies, but we didn't add the tools. The tools just came later. And then there was eventually the David Lynch film, which has its admirers. And how did you view that film when you saw it? First of all, I have to say that I'm a huge David Lynch fan. I mean, he's a master, one of the best, and, and I have massive respect for him. And so that is why when I learned at the time, having loved Elephant Man, that he will try to bring Dune to the big screen, I was really, really excited. I remember uh, walking in a theater and being very, very uh, excited. And, and uh, as I was watching the movie, there are several elements that uh, really impressed me. But uh, I felt that at the time, it was sometimes deviating from the spirit of the book. And I, I remember getting out of the theater saying to myself that this movie will be revisited again. There will be new adaptation because there, it was not, close enough to the spirit of the book. And I said to myself, somebody else will do it. It's going to be Ridley Scott or, or somebody else like that, that one day will do it. And I, I kept waiting. I waited, I waited. And I kept waiting, hoping that someone will do it. And I waited and waited. And, and I got tired of waiting. <laughs> and I decided to do it myself because I was sure somebody else will, will try to revisit that book again from another angle. Yeah, and I've read, and, and tell me if it is true that you... Uh, when you were making other films, you were kind of earmarking locations where you thought, oh, maybe I can use that for Dune when I make that one day, maybe a location. It's true that uh, well, I remember being in, in Jordan doing a feature film called Incendie that I was doing in, in 2009 and walking, exploring those deserts, those rock formations that, that remind me of the description of, of the book. I remember saying to myself, if ever I do a sci-fi movie like Doom, I'm coming back here for sure, because it's so close to what Frank Herbert envisioned. For a good reason, in a way, because Frank Herbert was inspired himself by the story of Lawrence of Arabia that is taking place in part into Jordan. And I think that there was like, 
in some ways he inspired himself a lot by uh, from reality so the way he depicts the planet arrakis is close to jordan for me and 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 uh, that is why I, i went back there and tell us about the moment when you know you finally got the gig and it was yours to direct how did that all come about Well, it was a strange, uh, 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 let's say that uh, when I, I started to work in, in Los Angeles, of course, one thing you can do in that environment is, is you have more resources. You can start to dream for real about, about science fiction. And when people were asking me what would be my biggest dream, I always answered, frankly, it could be Dune. And I remember there was a, a journalist at the time at the Venice Film Festival who asked me the question again, and I answered spontaneously that after Blade Runner, my one of them, definitely the biggest dream would be to do Dune, knowing that people were working to trying to get the rights. I was trying to get the right myself, and I just want to let everybody knows out there that it was something big for me. And uh, when Mary Parent from Legendary got the rights and by organized synchronicity. I mean, I, I knew she was about to, and, and she read that uh, I was interested and she called me spontaneously saying, I got the rights and, and I would love to do this with you. So we met and it was like a 45 seconds meeting where technically I walked into her office. She was there with the producer, Kale Boiter, and, and uh, we met the three of us and, and shook hands and said, let's do this together. We, we uh, I think that... Uh, Very quickly, we agreed on the nature of what would be this movie. And uh, she loved my work. And I knew that she was a very respected uh, producer that uh, has the reputation to protect the director she's working with. So it's, it was like a spontaneous uh, bond, let's say. That. Yeah. So you went into Mary Parent, the legendary production head's office and that was it it was very quick you all knew it was going to happen and, and then you got on with doing it yeah the, the, the thing is that uh, until then it went very smoothly and let's say that I, i was waiting for this opportunity for decades <laughs> so when it happened it went very very gently it, i just remember the moment when i went out of, of the legendary tower and i walked into the gardens outside in los angeles and I called my wife and said to her Whoa, I'm, I might do Dune. And, and, <laughs> and that, that, that precise moment, I felt how crazy this idea was and the pressure because suddenly it was becoming possible. But the fear didn't stay very long because uh, it's like uh, the excitement was too big. Then, and we've, we've seen the result, of course, and it's, a, you know, it's an extraordinary film and, and so engrossing. Thank you. And one imagine it must have been an incredibly complicated film to pull off with so many moving parts and locations. So, Denis, when you look back on it now, what aspects of what you accomplished give you the most satisfaction? Oof, it's a good question because uh, uh, there's so many aspects of uh, filmmaking, but uh, two things I will say spontaneously. I will say that uh, the um, screenplay, that was the biggest challenge. I mean, making the movie was a technical challenge for me, but it's a puzzle that is fun to do. But the screenplay itself, that was the holy grail, how to crack that novel, how to introduce it to an audience who would know nothing about the book, how to be able to introduce the complexity, to preserve, to protect the beautiful ideas of Frank Herbert, the poetry, the, his, his uh, obsessions, and still making sure that it, it could be uh, um, understandable and, and uh, So it could be, how can I say, uh, easy to digest from it on a big screen. I mean, and it's like, a, uh, that was the biggest challenge. Now I would say that um, 
one thing that I'm proud of is no matter what you think about the movie, the casting of the movie, the actors that embodied each character, I'm pretty proud of the choices I made, the people I invited on board. They are all very close to the depiction of the description of Frank Herbert, and they are very close to the spirit of the characters, and they are all fantastic actors. I mean, it's like that was a privilege to work with that uh, that tribe. I mean, it was a crazy privilege to work with all these these actors and actresses. And the, but then I'm very proud of the casting. Yeah, and rightly so. And they are, as you say, all extraordinary. Uh, can I just ask you to hone in on two? Timothy Chalamet, who is the lead, of course, as Paul Atreides, um, and Rebecca Ferguson, his mother. What was it like to work with them? What do they bring to the film as for you as a director and writer? First of all, is they are the two first ones that I approached. I approached Timothy, and right after I approached Rebecca. And, and they are like at the epicenter of the story. I put the relationship at the very center of the preoccupation of the storytelling. I mean, it's like uh, in June, there's a lot of characters that uh, it's like, uh, but uh, I specifically asked to the screenwriters to focus on this relationship. That is, to my humble opinion, the most interesting thing and the most rich in the novel, the most meaningful. And we uh, entirely construct the movie around them and um, uh, I had for, for Timothy for, for, for the part of Paul I didn't have any plan B I had Timothy in mind and then the first uh, same thing with Rebecca I mean I think that uh, it was for me uh, again uh, an incredible privilege to work with both of them because they had to bring sometimes tricky ideas to the screen in a very visceral way and, and I'm very proud of their work yeah absolutely and I just want to go back to the screenwriting Denis because as we all know, it was the first part. And of course, the film has done, you know, so well enough that now there will be part two. But how did you construct the screenplay with that in mind? There was uncertainty if you would get to make a second part, wasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I took a bet. It was an arrogant way to, of doing things. But I, I, the way we, we did is, that first of all, it was important that the first movie will be a completed project. That means that as you're looking at it, you will feel that Paul is going through a, a journey that is completed as a first part. And uh, I made sure as I was doing it that I was putting enough of my desires on screen. So if, if ever there will be no part two, my soul will not be crushed. I mean, I made sure to visit some images, some environments that I was dreaming about since all, so many years. I remember making shots saying to myself, if ever there's no part two, at least I will have done that. At least I will have been there. At least I will have been with them. I will have done. So there was like this will, at, at least I will have breath the air of Arrakis. I will have went into it. So there was something there that uh, it was a privilege to do that part one. But uh, um, yeah, it was a risky thing to do. <laughs> Yes, but it's paid off, of course, and the film has, has done, as it says, so well that now we've got part two coming up. What can you share about part two now? Where are you at with that right now? I'm always reluctant a little bit to talk about movies that uh, I'm working on because it's like creativity is, is uh, at the beginning, is vulnerable, it's fragile, and I love to protect that, that, that bubble. But I can say uh, uh, that uh, right now we are like... Um, the screenplay is, is uh, finished and we are like uh, working on the production design, on the design of the movie. It's the first time that I've done, that I do that, to revisit 
a world that I've been in before. It's it's interesting because all the R&D has been done. So it's like, uh, and I'm working with the same crew mostly. So it's like going back in a country with old friends and, and we know exactly what to do. We know the rules, we know. So it's like, it's a bit more, um, there's more flexibility. It will allow me to go further, to take more risk maybe and to have more fun with the cinema because it's like uh, now things are, are more solid under our feet. Well, we look forward to that. Now, obviously, if ever there was a movie that deserved the big screen treatment, it's the films you make, and particularly Dune, and you're a fierce advocate of the, the, the theatrical experience. Do you think cinema going will survive, given what's going on now with the, with the world we're in, the pandemic, streaming? And what does it mean to you to see your film and the work of others on the big screen? Yeah, I will say that the, for cinema in general, I think that as humans, we have a need to share emotions with other we have uh, we are in need of communal experience one thing that the pandemic showed us obviously is that how much we enjoy being together going to the restaurant together to going to a concert together to watch movies together there's something about sharing an emotion and feeling as one together is one of the most beautiful things that we can do as human beings and, and uh, i think that uh, the pandemic has been very difficult of course for the cinema industry as many uh, other things in, in our lives but i think that there will be an, an end to this pandemic and uh, i think we have been through the worst of it and that uh, uh, on the other side of it of course we will have to rebuild things i think that um, streaming is a very powerful tool i love streaming i mean it's it saved my life during the pandemic i mean i love streaming to revisit film history i love streaming to be able to uh, have access to movies that uh, uh, from the past or, or to revisit or it's it's fantastic but the cinema is a hypnotic experience and uh, all the tools and the power of cinema are found into a theater where the screen is big enough and the sound system uh, create the immersive feeling that you need for that to for this hypnotic feeling to be at its full power so it's like a I have total hope that uh, cinema the theatrical experience will prevail maybe differently a little bit, but it will, for sure. Denis, if I could just go back to Dune itself and the production, approximately how long did it take you to make the film? How long were you in production for? It's a, it's a bit tricky question. Because of the pandemic, uh, things got distorted. Time got distorted. I mean, uh, in normal times, it would have taken me three years or two years, between two years and a half and three years. Uh, now it, it has taken... Uh, for years, because of the pandemic, things got delayed and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, let's say it's like, uh, so it took, in reality, four years, but it, it, uh, in normal times, it would have been a short period of time. And you were saying earlier that, you know, when I asked you about the conundrum of making a film that was the first part and you weren't sure if the second would be made and you wanted to put some things in there, just whatever happened, they, they would be in that film. Can you tell us what some of those scenes or characters were? Uh, I think it's uh, multiple little details that uh, uh, are spread everywhere in the, in the movie. I mean, it can be an end in the sand. It can be a, a, the blue eyes of, of a Fremen girl at sunset. It can be... A, discovering Fremen in, in the deep desert uh, in the night or uh, being chased by a worm or it, there's multiple little moments that everywhere spread into the movies that uh, uh, were very, very um, meaningful for me that I was looking for to shoot, to, to bring to the screen that are in the movie. 
And the movie plays out on such a huge scale, and yet the plight of the individuals, that intimacy is always with us in the story. And you've said, as a storyteller, you're so interested in humans. What is it that the science fiction genre allows you to do to explore that, that interest in humans? Freedom. I think that it allows me to explore certain aspects of uh, humanity, like uh, religion or politics or, or different moral issues that uh, uh, in sci-fi, being in an in a imaginary future, imaginary time, it gives you freedom that uh, I would not have if I was like making a movie about reality. That's what I would say. And Denis, I have to ask you, is there an update on the series? My job uh, for me right now is to focus on, on uh, doing part one and part two. I put all my energy into, into the feature films. There, are, there is a team working full-time on the TV series. And, it, and uh, from what I've read, it's amazing. But uh, I'm not in, uh, implicated in that process now, maybe later. But uh, it's just that there's 24 hours in a day. <laughs> and I, I, uh, for me, my priority was the, the feature films. Yeah, and Denis, again, many congratulations on Dune. We wish you all the best in awards season and we can't wait to see the second part. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me. Take care. Thank you very much. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you to my colleagues Louise and Jeremy and to our guests for today's podcast, Denis Villeneuve. And thank you very much for listening. The Screen Podcast is available wherever you listen and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to let us know how you're enjoying the podcast. Also, do keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at ScreenDaily.com and at our social media outposts, including at ScreenDaily on Twitter. This episode was produced by Danielle Koch. Tune in next time and we'll see you then.